Bom dia, North Wake. Ah, that's good morning in Portuguese. That's one of the four uh, words that I learned when I was uh, two weeks ago uh, on a trip to Brazil with my, my brother Sam. The other three words were hello, uh, good evening, and how do I get to the best Brazilian steakhouse in Rio? Um, so while you guys were hosting the intermissions conference, Sam uh, Williams and I had entered missions. We had the great privilege and opportunity to, to go to Rio and uh, equip uh, and teach about 27 men and, and one gal, church leaders in Brazil, uh, on how to uh, counsel and minister their church members and their community. And I wanted to show you guys a picture uh, of that experience with Sam, but in Brazil, especially closer to the beach, the closer you get, men wear Speedos. Yeah, yeah, they do. Pretty much everywhere they go around the beach, they wear Speedos. And so I was looking through pictures, and I could not find a picture uh, of Sam without his Speedo uh, on. Uh, but I did find one, one photo here. Uh, so this is a picture of a, of a dinner one night we had after, after class. Uh, and these men and, 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 and this one lady, I don't know if you can barely see her. She's off to the far right in the coral shirt. Uh, we're, we're, we're getting equipped to better minister to their people. And I just want to thank you for being a church who cares uh, about missions enough to allow one of your pastors uh, to take two weeks out of their normal schedule and their normal duties to go and uh, just serve other people outside of our specific area. Uh, it means an awful lot, and it shows your heart and your love for the gospel. So I want to encourage you and thank you for that. And since I kind of derailed the beginning of this, let us pray uh, that God would be faithful to us uh, this morning as we enter into his, his word. Father, uh, as we've sung many songs this morning, and uh, as your word will uh, reveal to us this morning, um, we deeply desire to love you supremely. Lord, help cultivate those longings and those affections for us this morning as we read your word. Show us how beautiful you really are, the treasure that you really are, so that, Lord, we no longer cling to our old sin habits, to the old man, to idolatry. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. So I have a question for you who did not kiss dating goodbye. How does a person get over an ex? How does a young man or woman get through a breakup and overcome their ex? I know what a lot of ladies are thinking. It's binging on Rocky Road ice cream. I've seen that in a lot of rom-coms, and so that's how we get over it. No, but I think there's another thought that probably popped up into our mind. And if we're honest, the thought that popped up into our mind is a rebound. That we find a new girlfriend, a new boyfriend to replace the old one. The answer to the question is get a new one. Start dating someone more attractive, someone with a better personality, someone more interesting, more adventurous, someone with more to offer. Now some of you may be thinking this is a really weird way of starting a sermon. Did I just enter some kind of relational uh, dating class? No, uh, let me provide another illustration that highlights the same truth. Most of us have cell phones. Not only do we have cell phones, we 
love those cell phones. Whether you're in the iPhone camp or the Android camp, it doesn't matter. We're attached to these devices. Listen to this current research. 46% of smartphone owners say their smartphone is something, and I quote, they could not live without. Half. Half of people surveyed said they could not live without their cell phone. But think about it. We protect our cell phones with expensive cases. We accessorize our cell phones. We bling them out. And we even experience a form of separation anxiety when we lose them. If you don't believe me, watch a teenager when you take their cell phone away. Americans treasure their smartphones. But what happens when that newer version comes out? Many of us go and buy the latest and greatest version, even though the one we have works just as good as it did when it was new. For some reason, adding an S to the end of the cell phone version makes us think that our old version is obsolete. So what happens to that old cell phone when that new one comes out? The old phone that we once loved, the old phone that we once said we could not live without. We either trade it in for almost nothing. We give it to our kids to use as a gaming system in replacement of an iPod. Or we throw it in a basket with all the rest of our junk, and it becomes the favorite chew toy of our 99-pound dog, a boxer named Tank. That's my dog's name, by the way. Why? How could this once-treasured device be discarded so easily? The answer, answer is simple, because something else better came along. Whether it is a better girlfriend or a better cell phone, the point remains the only reason that you and I are willing to give something up that we thought we could not live without is because something better came along, something we love more. And that's what today's sermon is about. We are in this series, as Daniel said, on loving God. And this sermon is about the role our affections, our loves play in addressing our sin struggles. The title of today's sermon is How to Get Over an X. And the X represents our idols, our sins, our worldly loves. Thomas Chalmers a 19th century Scottish pastor is best known for his sermon titled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And his premise was that a person could not rid themselves of sin. They could not. They could not rid themselves of sins, what he called old affections, unless they were supplanted with a new desire, a new affection. He says, and I quote, The only way to dis dispossess it, the heart, of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And I'll tell you, and I'll be honest, most of today's ideas were sparked by this great work. The only thing I would want to tweak, and I feel even guilty for criticizing this work in the slightest, is one word in the title. I would like to exchange the word new with supreme. The change may seem insignificant, but I think it's helpful and even necessary. Let's go back to our opening illustrations. And I think the impact of replacing this one word 
will be evident. If we start dating a new girlfriend or purchase a new cell phone, simply being new will not keep us from wanting to go back out with the old girlfriend or going back to the old cell phone. The new girlfriend and the new cell phone must be better. They must be supreme for them to expel any desire for return. For if the new girlfriend does not surpass the love that we had for the former girlfriend, we will long and pine for her once again. Not only that, we will reach out to her again. We will eventually show up in her front yard like John Cusack in the movie, Say Anything, with a boombox held over our heads, playing In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. You, you guys, George, you feeling me? All right. We will eventually grovel at her feet, begging her to take us back. Similarly, if our new cell phone does not being better than the old one, we will fight it away from that 99-pound dog, clean off the drool, and reconnect the service and our lives to it. You see, new does not always mean better. What I, so therefore, we need the expulsive power of a better affection, what I would like to call a supreme affection. Only a supreme affection will provide the confidence of not returning to the old sin habit. Now, one of the best passages of Scripture which display the realities of this expulsive power is found in Matthew chapter 13. So please, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 and find your way to verse 44 and read this with me. Matthew 13, verse 44. This is where Jesus is telling a parable of a hidden treasure. In verse 44, we read, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered up. And in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. When I read this passage, imagery pops into my mind. And I picture a man who's on a journey and he decides to take a shortcut through a field. And as he walks through that field, he, his foot falls on a hole and goes down into a hole and he feels something at the bottom of that hole. He reaches down in there and he pulls it up and there's this wooden chest with a lock on it. And as quickly as he found it, he breaks that lock and he opens it to find it filled with gold. It's a treasure chest. And the man, he puts that treasure back in the hole, he covers it up and he quickly goes down to the county clerk's office and he's trying to find out who owns that field. And when he identifies the owner, he quickly approaches the owner and says, how much do you want for the property? And the owner looks at him and he asks for a ridiculous amount of money. He tells the man, it's going to cost you everything you own. And oh, by the way, I like that watch and I want the t-shirt off your back too. Too much for the man? No. He says, deal, done. It says in the text that in his joy, he gave it all up to buy the field. And understanding the joy this man has while selling everything is critical to understanding the main point of the passage. Why would this traveler joyfully give up everything he had? Because he perceived the treasure he found in that field, that it was infinitely more valuable than what he was asked to give up. 
You see, when we find something of surpassing worth, it is easy to give something up of significantly less value. Jesus' parable is about this thing that you and I have titled the expulsive power of a supreme affection. This man valued God and his kingdom more than everything he previously had. And the same is true of us when we find something, someone, we treasure supremely. All other treasures, all other idols, all other sin habits, everything we have is joyfully sold. And as we began today, the way we get over an ex is to find a better girlfriend, a better boyfriend. Now, one of the ways, the best ways I think that we can deepen our understanding of this biblical concept, this scriptural truth, is to observe it on display in the lives of two different people, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. So if you will, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 63. We're going to start in the Old Testament with a man who is God, after God's own heart, King David, who wrote Psalm 63. In the first eight verses, we read, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Just reading this passage, you... You, you see that it oozes with affection. And as we, we'll see, it is an affection that dramatically affects David's treasures, what he treasures. And this affection is on display from the very beginning. With David's salutation, he writes, Oh God, you are my God. He does not say you are God. He does not say you are our God. He says you are my God. God. It is personal. It's intimate. King David takes God as his possession, and as we will continue to read, God is his most prized possession. And David continues in his pursuit of God, and notice that he pursues God in a particular way. He does not casually pursue God. Because God is his great treasure, we read, he earnestly seeks God. All of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength. David earnestly seeks the Lord. And the psalm continues with this imagery of dehydration in the desert. When I was a little boy, I used to love getting up early on Saturday mornings. For you, you guys who are over the age of 35, you know what I'm talking about. Saturday morning is when the cartoons came on. We didn't have channels like Nickelodeon. We didn't have Disney Channel. We didn't have the Cartoon Network that showed cartoons all day long. And my favorite cartoon was Looney Tunes. 
And every now and then, Bugs Bunny would take a wrong turn at Albuquerque. His destination was the beach, but he would find himself in a desert place. And the cartoon would depict him as dehydrated, dying of thirst, and at the pinnacle of passing out. And this is actually where we find King David in this psalm. The superscription reads, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. More than likely, King David is fleeing his own son, Absalom. Absalom was leading a revolt against him and was trying to kill his father. So David is physically weak and dehydrated. But notice what he thirsts for. He thirsts for God. Even more than water to heal his physical dehydration, King David longs for his God to quench his soul. David's flesh is fainting, and it's fainting for God. And even though there is no water in the land, David knows that God can and will satisfy. David is then reminded of former days when he beheld God's glory and power in the sanctuary. It was a place where he had experienced God's glory and power in its most tangible sense as the saints, the people of God, gathered together to worship. And then David makes a remarkable statement in verse 3. Look down in your Bibles at verse 3. He writes that God's love is better than life itself. What an astounding statement. Think about it for a moment. David is still praising God in the midst of the direst circumstances because he considers God's love as more valuable, more satisfying, more fulfilling, better than everything else his life offers him as he puts it better than life itself. Can you say this? Is this true of you? In your greatest trials, in your greatest suffering, when your family deserts you, when others attack you, are you, when you're in physical danger and you are physically weak, is God's love for you better than life itself? If so, like David, your lips will praise him. David's supreme affection for God was his greatest treasure. Alan Ross comments here, only a true believer can praise God when he is not experiencing God's blessing at the time. And David continues his affectionate declaration to God by committing to praise him as long as he has life. The life that David does have, he devotes to praising the one whose love is better than that life. And if that were not enough already, David decides to use simile to express his complete satisfaction and joy in God. He compares it to the satisfaction as with fat and rich food, or some translations, marrow and fatness. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of us don't consider marrow and fatness satisfying. It doesn't just like roll off the tongue like it did in David's time. So what is David up to here? I think a comparable example would be the legendary kitchen sink 
from Peaches and Cream Ice Cream Shop at Disney World, Orlando, Florida. As you'll see in the slide behind me, this monstrosity began being served in the 1990s and actually comes in a bowl that resembles a kitchen sink faucet and all. Now listen to the ingredients that's in this monstrosity. The picture doesn't do its service. Two scoops of vanilla ice cream, two scoops of chocolate ice cream, two scoops of strawberry ice cream, one scoop mint chocolate chip ice cream, one scoop coffee ice cream, half a cup of fudge, half a cup of butterscotch topping, half a cup of peanut butter topping, one banana, one cinnamon spice cupcake, one angel food cupcake, three tables of chocolate syrup, one quarter cup marshmallow cream, one quarter cup strawberry topping, a quarter cup pineapple topping, one full can of whipped topping, one brownie, one candy bar, four chocolate chip cookies, one tablespoon toasted almonds, one tablespoon dark and white chocolate shavings, one tablespoon chocolate cookies with cream filling, one tablespoon chopped jellied orange slices. I don't know what that is. That doesn't sound good. Uh, <laughs> tablespoons of milk chocolate chip morsels, one tablespoon of peanut butter morsels, one tablespoon of chocolate sprinkles, one tablespoon rainbow sprinkles, and not one but a half a cup of cherries on top. Woo! As a result, the new translation coming out, the JMV, the Jake Mason version of the Bible, reads this. My soul will be satisfied as with the kitchen sink. That's really not a translation coming out. So what King David wants us to know is that you and I will never be more satisfied than we are with God. He totally and completely satisfies the soul more than the best, most satisfying food you and I could ever imagine. Are you satisfied with God in this way? Does his love for you satisfy you more than the legendary kitchen sink bowl of ice cream would? He should. He longs to. David was satisfied even in the midst of great trials and tribulations. And that's why he could praise God with joyful lips even in the midst of those trials. Now King David continues his passionate love letter to God by acknowledging his need for God at all times, day and night. On those long nights away from home, life in danger with tremendous family stresses and strains, he remembers God instead of turning to something other than God to cope, a lesser affection. Instead, he meditates on God, his supreme affection. God is ever on David's mind. It's not like, it's not like he, God just pops into his mind. No, David intentionally chooses to remember God. This is what the biblical word meditate means. It means to set and focus our mind upon God and his word where we see him most clearly. David knows that God has been his help in the past. And he likens God's protection to a mother bird who shields her children under her wings. And so David's soul clings to God. He considers it being glued to God. He cannot imagine being separated from him. And he knows without a shadow of a doubt that his loving God is the sustaining love of his life. Alan Ross comments here again. He says, so even in the wilderness, David can say that he is firmly united to God with the strongest affection. So King David 
fully displays the power of a supreme affection. God is not uh, simply some new affection. He is not some average affection. God is his greatest affection. And David views God's love as better than life itself. He has no need for idols, no need for some vice to cope. God's love for him has so filled his heart that there is no room left for idolatry. If you will, there is a no vacancy sign hanging on his heart. There is no room in the end. He is full and he is satisfied. If that weren't enough, I'd like for us to look at a second person. Turn your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 3. I want to look at the Apostle Paul who displays this awesome power of a supreme affection as well. And so in Philippians 3, we find Paul warning his beloved and sisters against finding righteousness in works of the law. Yet we find this same underlying principle at work. So if you would, in Philippians 3, read with me in verses 7 and 8. Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, before we jump into what Paul describes as the surpassing worth, I think we need to understand what it was that he had previously found his worth in before he made this statement. Jump back just a little bit before to verse 4, and I'm going to start in the second half of verse 4 of chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In these few verses, Paul has basically laid out his resume. If Time Magazine had been around in the time of Paul, Paul would have been Time Magazine's man of the year. Paul is basically saying if there's any person that has room to have a high self-esteem, it's me. And in doing so, look at what he highlights. He highlights six things that he used to find his worth in, his identity in. First, his religiosity. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Second, his ethnicity or race. He says he was of the people of Israel. Third, his social status. He says he was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Basically, being a tribe of Benjamin meant that you were one of the faithful tribes of Israel. Fourth, his position or title. He says, as to the law, guess what, guys? I am a Pharisee. Fifth, his drive or passion. He says, as to zeal, that he was a persecutor of the church. And finally, his morality. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, usually when we read this passage, Paul's list of credentials seem to be stuck in time. You know, something relevant for a first century Jew, but not something relevant for a 21st century American. But I think it's when we highlight these categories, as you'll see on the slide behind me that Paul is using, that they become directly applicable to you and I. 
you see that the world has not changed that much in the past 2,000 years. In our culture, are you and I not tempted to find our worth in religious affiliations or religiosity? Can't we create an identity based on our ethnicity or race? Do we seek importance through social status? How noteworthy are our positions and titles to us? Do we find significance in our drives, passions, and hobbies? And finally, what value do some of us derive from our morality? Well, you know what? I'm a good person. All of these vie for our identity, for our affections, and all of them promise to give us worth and significance in our society as well. So these are the idols of our day. Our idols aren't carven statues that we sit on the shelves of our homes. No, our idols sit on the thrones of our hearts. They are things that compete with our love for God. This is why the Apostle John would write in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So even though Paul's were particular expressions of his idolatrous treasures in his day and culture, we have particular expressions of these in our day and culture as well. But what did Paul do with these potential idols? What did he do with the things that his culture said were most valuable? He writes in the verses that we began with that he counted them as loss. And the language in the and these two verses are saturated with words of value, loss, gain, count, and worth. Paul is saying, I have done the math. I have run the numbers. And the things that the world has presented as valuable pale in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul actually refers to them as rubbish. The KJV uses the word dung. In its literal sense, Paul is saying that all other identities, all other loves, all other idols, all their promises are, to use a child's word, poop. They're poop. Whenever you put any worldly love next to Christ and stand them side by side, no matter how attractive it may be, it becomes the grossest thing humanly imaginable. The thing that we discard in the toilet. Why would Paul use such graphic and disgusting language. I think it's to make the point that our sins, our idols, our worldly loves are not even in the same category as Jesus. So again, we observe the expulsive power of this supreme affection. Apostle Paul is motivated by a supreme love for Jesus. In his mind, who would hold on to sin? Who would cling to dung when the greatest treasure imaginable is here for the taking? And Paul knew without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the supreme affection. And he gladly gave up everything else, all other idols and all other identities for Christ. We read in another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, all of us, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image 
from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. According to this verse and the others we have looked at this morning, it is by beholding God and his glory that you and I change. If you want to know how to crush your idols, if you want to know how to deal with your sin struggles, if you want to know how to be transformed into the image of God, it is by cultivating a supreme affection for God. Only then can you and I have the hope of putting sin to death. Simply recognizing that sin is wrong is not enough. Mere moralism is not sufficient. We must begin to treasure God and his ways as supremely more valuable than what we get from our sins and our idols. People don't worship idols simply because idols are so great in and of themselves. We don't. We appease idols for what they promise us in return. For example, the idol of greed promises security. The idol of power promises significance. The idol of lust promises pleasures and escape. The idol of appearance promises attention and importance, and so on and so on and so on. So it is only when we begin to value what God offers us as more valuable than what our, our idols offer us that we find freedom from our idolatry. So back to the opening question. How does a person get over an ex? They start dating someone better. One that offers them something more than the old one, the ex, ever could. This is how we get over the X. This is how we get over our sins and our idols. Now, for Christians, obviously, God is the better love. God is not only better, He is the best. He is supreme. And when you have the best, the supreme, there is no reason, there is no motivation, there is no need to ever return to the old one, the X. So if you're like me, and I hear a sermon like this, I'm like, yeah, Jake, that's right. So what do I do? How do we make this practical? How do I put this concept into practice? How do I move on from the X? How do you and I cultivate this supreme affection tomorrow, even today? I think our illustrations that we began with can continue to be helpful here. You see, when I met my wife, Shelly, uh, 1993, on the beach of Pensacola, Florida, in the Gulf of Mexico. She was better than all other girls I had ever dated. She was and is prettier. She is funnier. She has a better personality. She's more adventurous. In every respect, my wife was and is better. She was not simply a new girlfriend. She was a superior girl. And from that moment that we met, she became my greatest treasure, better than life, of surpassing worth. Now, even though she was all of those things for me, there were things that I, that we did to cultivate those affections. And this is where I think it's helpful for us today. If you were in or have been in a relationship, think about the things that you did to stoke the affections of your loved one. First, do you remember your first date? 
You wanted to know as much as you possibly could about them. You hung on every word that they said, and you just wanted them to share everything about themselves. Not only that, you guys remember passing notes? Before email, before texting, before Snapchat, before Instagram, yes, I predate all of those things. We actually had to take a pen out and a piece of paper and write a note. On my first date with my wife, I was leaving her house and I had to turn around and write a note to her. I loved her that much. I wanted to be with her that much. But when I would get a note from her, I would treasure it. I would, as quickly as I got it, I would open it up and I would read it. And I would read it over and over again. Some of the notes would become tattered and worn because I wanted to know her intimately. I would reread the notes and I would study them just to get an insight to who she was. The Bible is God's love letter to us. He has passed us the most impressive note ever written. So the first way that we cultivate a supreme affection for God is by reading his love letter to us, what we call the Bible. So my question is, do you read it? Do you read it daily? Do you read every word? Do you read it over and over again? Do you study it to know God more intimately? Do you treat the Bible like a treasured love note from your loving spouse? Second, remember talking on the phone for hours and hours on end where time just seemed to fly by? And then even when you tried to end the conversation, it went something like this. No, you hang up. No, 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 you you hang up first. You still there? Yeah, yeah, I'm still here. No, you hang up. (laughs) So one of the ways we cultivate our supreme affection for God is to spend time with him, sometimes lengthy time with him, in what we call prayer, talking to him. So how is your prayer life? Are there times when you just don't want it to end? Do you share everything with God verbally, even though he is omniscient and he knows everything about you? When's the last time you took, just say, two hours of solitude and prayer with the Lord? Because I know most of us, when we were first dating our loved ones, two hours went by like nothing. Third, remember constantly talking to your new girlfriend, your new boyfriend, to others. You annoyed your friends to death. They were sick and tired of hearing you talk about them. But you were so in love that you couldn't help but share your great love with them. So another way that we practically cultivate a supreme affection for God is by telling others about him. The thing we call evangelism. So when's the last time you shared your great love for God, your relationship with God, with a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, or a family member? Does this sharing seem to be constant? Are your friends annoyed because you share your great love so frequently? Is Jesus always on your lips? Fourth, remember when money was not a big issue? No date too expensive, no gift too extravagant. If you're engaged or married, just think about the engagement ring you purchased. As Carson mentioned a couple weeks ago in his sermon, it was the most valuable thing he owned. Why would he, why would any of us so easily part with the most valuable thing that we have? 
because the person is of, as Paul, to use Paul's language, surpassing worth. Uh, So another way we cultivate a supreme affection for God is not by making money a big deal, what we call stewardship and generosity. So does your bank account reflect that God is the most important person in your life? When was the last time that his surpassing worth resulted in you giving spontaneously, generously, outside of your tithe or your weekly offering? Would your finances be handled any different if your affections for him grew? A couple more. Remember always having our loved ones on our mind. We just constantly thought about them. We daydreamed. We went to bed thinking about them. They even encountered our dream state. So as we practically cultivate a supreme affection for God, one of the ways we do that is by remembering and meditating on him and his word, what we call scripture memorization. So what is the last scripture you memorized? When was that? Is this a common practice for you? How is his word always on your mind? Also, remembering, remember finding out and doing all the things that they loved. So if you planned a date and you really wanted to eat Italian, but you found out your loved one loved seafood more, guess where you went to eat? You went to eat seafood. Okay? And it's interesting, not only that, but your preferences began to change over the relationship. Her likes actually became your likes, and and her dislikes actually began to become your dislikes. So another way we cultivate a supreme affection for God is by allowing his loves to become our loves, and his hates to become our hates, what we call obedience. So how are you lining up your preferences to his commands? Do you obey even when you really want to do something that's outside of his will? Is obedience to God's word becoming something that you joyfully embrace? Lastly, remember getting introduced to her family and friends. Now, for some of us, that's a more interesting experience than others, okay? But nonetheless, you were invited into and probably embraced a whole new community. Her world had become your world, and you were overjoyed to participate in it. Because she was there, and the people she loved was there. So lastly, another way that we practically cultivate a supreme affection for God is by loving his family, what we call the church. So the question is, do you love the bride of Christ? Do you enjoy being around the people of God, even the ones that don't look like you, that don't like the same things that you like? What things do you intentionally do to strengthen your relationship with those in this church? Now, if I'm not careful, what I've described today can discourage some of you. You can say, you know what, these expectations are too high. Uh, Or this isn't my current experience. They don't match up with what you're saying. I would say I understand. Even the two examples that I've used today, King David and the Apostle Paul, uh, we know that King David experienced affections of lust for Bathsheba that surpassed his affections for God at one, in one season of his life. 
We know that the Apostle Paul suffered such strong afflictions that he even despaired at one point of life. Even in our illustration, you and I struggle in our relationships and our marriages at times. And on top of that, idols don't break up with us like they do in my illustration. Instead, idols pursue us. They want us to be together. But you and I can and must break up with them. And this can only happen when we find something better, someone better. And that one, someone is God. He is of surpassing worth. And the point is that we have to fight through these difficult seasons, these times when we don't even feel like it, because our relationship with God is exceedingly worth it. So to summarize, the way we crush idols in the heart, the way we put sin to death, is primarily by cultivating a supreme affection for God. The way we get over the X is by finding a better one to replace them in our heart. And it's only when a supreme affection fills our heart that there is no room left in it to be filled with idols or sin. And God is the only replacement sufficient to fill our hearts as believers. He is the supreme affection. He is the treasure hidden in the field. He is better than life, and he is of surpassing worth. And as we've seen and been reminded of, we can and must practically cultivate that affection. And we do this, as you read on the slide behind me, when we read and study his word, when we talk and pray to him, when we share him with others, when we give to him and others generously, when we meditate on his word, when we obey him joyfully, and when we love his church. Church, we can, we can cultivate a supreme affection for God, and it's our responsibility to do so because he is worth it. It is only when we cultivate this supreme affection for him that we expel all idols from our hearts. This is the expulsive power of a supreme affection. This is how we get over next, and this is how you and I get over our sin. So as the praise team comes up, as you can see, the communion table is set. And to be honest, it's a great opportunity for us because in communion, we get the chance to remember the great sacrifice of our supreme love. And the table at North Wake is for those who are in a relationship with him, for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is for those who love him above all other loves. Now, it doesn't mean that we never struggle, but it is for those who cultivate their love for God so that even in the struggles, he becomes their greatest and supreme affection. So the table is open to those who are willing to forsake all other idols and sin because they love God infinitely more. Now, there may be those here today who have yet to make God their supreme love. And God may be calling you today to enter into that relationship with him. That as you've heard today's word preached, you say, I want a supreme affection for God. I would encourage you to use this time to simply pray where you are and to seek him as that supreme love. Or you can step out of your seat and come down front 
There'll be elders here. I'll ask elders to kind of strategically take communion. But grab an elder and tell them, I want to enter into that supreme love with God. We would love to pray with you. So the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and after he gave thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is a cup of the blood of my new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me as well. He says, in doing so, we remember Christ's great sacrifice, his death, until the day that he returns. So church, as you take this opportunity to remember, come and worship your supreme love.